Hi, and welcome to the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have Claire Scantlebury from Liverpool University talking about the risk factors associated with recurrent colic. And Mandy Lopez from Louisiana State University talking about the use of stem cells in equine regenerative medicine. Claire Scantlebury trained as a vet and is currently a postdoc at Liverpool University Veterinary School. Her paper investigates the management and horse level risk factors for recurrent colic in the general equine population. Claire, your most recent paper, which is available online on EVJ Early View, highlights some interesting factors associated with recurrent colic in the general equine population. Um, could you tell us a bit about the study design? Yeah, so the study itself, it was a longitudinal study. So we took um, a selection of horses from first opinion practice um, who had had an episode of medical colic. And this was confirmed at the start as being medical colic by the attending veterinary surgeon from first opinion practice. And then we followed them for a year. So each individual horse was followed for a full year. We had um, questionnaire information at the beginning of the study. And then this was followed up with three separate questionnaires over the course of the year at roughly four week intervals to find out about the horse and how it was being managed at that time of year, any kind of prophylactic health care that it was receiving. And if there was another episode of colic during that time period, during the follow-up time period, then we had some criteria upon which whether we thought that we would, we would categorise that as recurrent colic. So yes, that was if, um, if this was a new case of colic, it could happen at any point during that time of um, that year. And it was identified as a separate episode of colic if the horse had been free from any clinical signs of colic, um, had been passing normal droppings, eating normally um, for a full 48 hours after a preceding colic episode. So that was our case definition there. How many cases did you have and how many controls? Okay, so we ended up with um, 127 horses that we had a complete data set for. So this was what those which we'd interviewed at the beginning of the cohort and then three times throughout the study as well. And um, among those, 59 episodes of colic were recorded and classified as recurrent colic. Um, 17 of these were um, owner-reported. So no vet was called there. Um, this was recorded based on the signs that they were showing. Um, and we had a questionnaire that we asked the owners about that. Um, and for the rest of them, we were able to go back to the clinical history for, um, from the vets to find out more about the colic and the outcomes in those cases. Okay, and how did you gather the information? Was it phone calls, written questionnaires? So this was all done by telephone. Um, we thought that this would be an easier way to keep in touch with people, um, point of contact to keep the continuity with um, horse owners. And um, so there were a number of us that were involved in collecting the data over the course of the year. So out of all the management um, factors that you looked at, what did you find was associated to the risk of recurrent colic? Okay, so um, this study was a cohort study, so we were able to look at those horses that had had a, an episode of recurrent colic and compare them with um, 
time periods from which horses didn't have any um, recurrent colic. So we had some case criteria and exclusion criteria there that we detailed in the paper. And the main findings were that some behavioural risk factors such as crib biting or wind sucking behaviour and weaving behaviour appeared to increase the risk of recurrent colic in this population. And the um, effect size for the crib biting was fairly large. Um, it's um, an odds ratio of 10.1. Um, so this looked to be a fairly strong um, association with um, recurrent colic. So did that mean that horses with crib biting were 10 times more likely to get recurrent colic than a normal horse? Yes, within our study, that's, that, okay. was the, that was what we measured. This was a somewhat restricted population of horses. It was all from um, horses from the northwest of the UK. Um, and the sample size was fairly small in that we were looking at 127 horses. But looking through at the statistical analysis, then the effect size was fairly strong. So we adjust that by the confidence intervals and were able to say um, that there was an association there. So it's an association, but not a causal effect. So it's kind of a clue to suggesting factors that could be um, associated with the risk of recurrent colic. And you also identified that weaving behaviour would increase the horse's chance of suffering from recurrent colic. Um, so that was, the, the odds ratio for that was 3.9, so approximately four times more likely if, if they showed any weaving behaviour. They're interesting findings as there's been some other studies looking at um, these particular stereotypies in the horse and have suggested that there's a link with colic. These studies haven't yet been able to say conclusively what that link is, but um, there's a suggestion given that these types of horses are coming up in more than one study as being um, identified as a particular risk of colic, that potentially that should alert vets to the types of horses that you might want to pay a bit more attention to and think about their colic prevention strategies. Do you have a hypothesis as to whether these stereotypies are manif manifestations of an underlying problem like um, stress or altered gut function? Or do you think these behaviours could be causing the colic? Yeah, I mean, we, we try to um, summarise this in the paper. And other studies have looked at crib biting and wind sucking um, and have reported on weaving as well and have suggested that certain types of um, aspects of the way that the horses are managed could be linked to the behaviour occurring. There's also um, hypotheses about whether the genetics play a part or whether there's any kind of learned element in there as well. But certainly more work needs to be done to find out what the underlying cause is. And um, particularly given that there's this suggestion that there's an increased risk of colic, then that this would support further investigation to find out what the kind of health impact is for, for horses that crib or wind suck. So you found a decreased risk with horses that were out of pasture for a longer amount of time. Yeah. And with eating fruit and vegetables. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Okay, I'll talk about both of those separately. Mm. So, so definitely the increase um, time spent at pasture came out in the model um, as having a decreased risk of recurrent colic within this population. This is something that's been identified before in other studies, saying that um, access to grazing can play an important role in reducing risk of colic. 
Um, so numerically, if you look at the, the model, then it would suggest that compared to a horse that was stable 24 hours a day, every day of the week, a horse that was allowed 12 hours per day turnout every week had half the risk of colic within this population. This suggests that access to pastures is possibly really important. There needs to be a caveat with that in terms of the way that increased access to pasture might be introduced by an owner, so you wouldn't necessarily want to um, chuck them out in the field straight away, and any changes in turnout should be done gradually over a number of weeks. And also consideration of other health conditions for the horse, so it may not be beneficial for every pony to have free or increased access to grazing, so particularly those at risk of laminitis, for example, or other health concerns, so this needs to be um, weighed up and discussed with the vets. So we found a marker in, in our model saying, yes, there's a link here. We suggest there's a link, but certainly introducing more grazing time should be done in consultation with the, the vet. So Claire, why do you think an increased time out at pasture results in a decreased risk of suffering from recurrent colic? I think there's a number of benefits for them having access to pasture. Um, horses are designed to be trickle feeders, continuous grazing, so um, whereas we know that when they're first turned out they may eat a, eat a lot of grass in one go, but if they're, if they're left for longer periods of time then they may, may trickle feed. So that's uh, beneficial for the digestive processes within the, within the gut. Also it's an opportunity for um, a change in environment and potentially contact with other horses, so if we're looking at behavioural influences there as well then that could be a benefit to improving the well-being of the animal so there's a number of different mm. benefits yeah there was a weak link to um an increased risk found with ingestion of probiotics yes do you think this is more to do with the type of horse an owner might buy probiotics for or do you think it is a biological effect that the probiotics is having on the horse yeah, okay. So um, probiotics are in the model included there. Um, they were included because they improved the overall fit of the model. So this was something that um, when you're generating the statistical model and you're testing it for the best factors that fit in there, um, then probiotics fitted well with the other, other covariates in the model. It was borderline significant. Um, I think it was 0 0.055. So it is a, it's a weak effect, as you say. Um, it raises a question mark about it, certainly. So it, what is the link? Is it because certain types of horses are more likely to be given probiotics? So older horses, those with dental problems or previous episodes of laminitis or even previous episodes of colic. So it, it, what is the, the effect here? What's going on here? It definitely raises further questions. And I think further work is needed to look at the benefits of probiotics, the pros and cons of using it, and which, what types of people use them, and what decisions are made for their use. There's no conclusive evidence to dissuade somebody at the moment from buying a probiotic due to the risk of recurrent colic. Not at this, not at this point in time, no. But I think that it's, it highlights that further work is needed mm -hmm. to see, see what this effect is. Was there a link between parasite burden and the recurrent colic? This was a questionnaire-based study. Um, at the very beginning, at the outset of the study, we looked at 
what we could achieve with the funds that were available and we decided that we weren't able to unfortunately weren't able to collect fecal samples and blood samples um, for this cohort of horses that would have been absolutely lovely to do that um, however we were able to look at proxy me measures for internal parasite control so we asked about wormers that worm worming history how frequently um, wormers were given and other management factors such as whether people poo picked in the field and whether they rotated the grazing, co-grazed and, and other elements like that. Um, these were all tested in the statistical model, um, all of these proxy measures for, for worming history, but they didn't come out in, in this model as being associated particularly with recurrent colic. So what would your take-home message be for the ambulatory vets treating um, a recurrent colic case? From experience in practice and also from the literature available on colic and recurrent colic that it can be quite a, a challenge to, to manage. I think that it's important to talk to the owners about the management history and the background of that horse and dental, worming um, and, and other factors to do with their, their prophylactic healthcare as well to um, think about prevention of colic. Certainly we know that a horse that's had a colic episode in the past is, is quite likely to have another colic episode in the future. So um, flagging up those cases in, in practice and um, providing the owner with a bit more information perhaps about colic prevention or, or having a chat with them on the phone about it might be useful. From this study then it looks like horses that um, show behavioural traits such as crib biting, wind sucking and weaving are at um, particular risk of recurrent colic and that the risk can be modified by having some access to pasture but as I said this needs to be introduced gradually. I would not disregard the use of probiotics at this stage but certainly there was a, um, a very weak link with it being um, associated with recurrent colic but it was difficult to tease out the other factors like the age of the horse and why they were being used to, to start off with. Um, and certainly the finding that fruit and vegetables influenced um, crib biting as well. At the moment, this is, a, is, is indicating that there may be a link there um, and it's just preliminary, preliminary findings, but it's definitely worth investigating further. What was the link between fruit and vegetable and crib biting? There appeared to be an interaction or some kind of combination between um, feeding fruit and vegetables and a horse um, showing crib biting or wind sucking behaviour. So either one on their own, then they were at increased risk of colic. But in combination, those two factors in combination, then they appeared to be at decreased risk of colic. Now, whether this is to do with um, different ways in which owners decide to feed the animals or different motivations or uses of the horse, for example, whether that could have an influence on, on recurrent colic risk, then it, it's unclear and certainly more work is, is probably needed to have a look at that. There's not much um, information about how different aspects of nutrition can have an impact on, 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 on colic, um, so it's definitely worth investigating further. Are there any good colic resources you can recommend for ambulatory vets? 
Yes, I would say that there are a number of resources available on um, on the web pages. Um, if you have a look at some of the ones that are based from universities, particularly um, the University of Liverpool has got a colic web page where you'll find some information on different aspects and methods to prevent colic, which could be useful to think about when advising owners. Many thanks to Claire for that interview. We're now talking to Mandy Lopez, an Associate Professor of Veterinary Surgery at Louisiana State University Veterinary School, as well as being an orthopaedic research scientist and Director of the Laboratory for Equine and Comparative Orthopaedic Research. Mandy has written a review paper on the use of stem cells in equine regenerative medicine. This review is one of a series of six, which the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation have sponsored as an online collection, which will be launched shortly, highlighting their areas of interest. Would you be able to start by telling us what a stem cell is, when in development we might find different types of stem cells, and what their potential to differentiate would be? Right, that's a very good question. And the stem cell, the term stem cell, is sort of an amorphous term that has come to encapsulate any cell that's capable of dividing and can potentially contribute to new tissue formation. So if we go sort of into the the research terminology or the more specific terminology related to it, you have to distinguish the source of the stem, stem cells, meaning the age of the donor, versus the plasticity or differentiation capacity of the cells. So it's an important distinction. And though there are there are the two considerations overlap, certainly they are distinct as well. So for instance, you can uh, derive a stem cell from an embryo. Those are embryonic stem cells. Uh, you can derive them or harvest them from a, a, an organism that's not fully developed, so beyond an embryo, but not capable of survival outside the womb. And then you have what's called adult stem cells, which is, again, kind of overlaps with the fetal term the, or fetal stem cells. However, adult actually refers to um, a fully differentiated organism. Adult does not mean adult by most standards. It simply means fully differentiated. Now, to distinguish from the age of the donor, you are distinct from the age of the donor is the level of differentiation. So the which are totipotent, all capable of all differentiation, pluripotent, uh, capable of that's differentiating into the three embryonic layers or tissues that are derived from them. Uh, multipotent, which is the term we're most familiar with, and that refers to, uh, well, usually refers to the ability to dis to differentiate into tissues within that embryonic layer, and then unipotent, which is fairly uh, distinct, meaning it can only differentiate into tissues of a specific, a single tissue. However, we need to be careful because there's a little bit of overlap between the, these distinctions. And in addition, we have found that there is de-differentiation or the ability to go revert to an earlier stage of differentiation and uh, trans-differentiation, the ability to transfer essentially 
or assume characteristics of a different embryonic layer. So the the definition stem cell is a lot more complex than it would than the the uh, the, the four letters actually convey. However, um, it typically refers to a cell that is not fully differentiated. Again, that is capable of dividing or reproducing itself um, and uh, differentiating into tissues, more than one tissue type. Okay. So from what I can gather, when you harvest the stem cells, they'll be the same sort of from the same age, they'll be either adult or, say, fetal. But even with an adult harvest, you can have stem cells of differing capacities to differentiate. So That's exactly right. Is there any way to choose the stem cells with the greatest differentiation potential and the greatest ability to proliferate to then extract them from the soup of cells and culture them up? And you you pose a very good question, and I believe that would certainly be the aim of most of the researchers in the stem cell field. It is difficult to identify the capacity of individual cells because we are not, I think, fully knowledgeable about how to characterize them or how to identify them. There's been a wealth of research done to, quote, characterize various populations of stem cells. The way that we evaluate them is typically by surface antigens or proteins that every cell expresses that are characteristic of that cell and unique to that cell. And we have certainly looked at different panels of markers to try to find those cells that have the greatest expansion expansion capacity and differentiation or capacity or plasticity. So this is, I guess, the greatest question or mm-hmm. or the question that we all aspire to answer. And it's unlikely that a single population will be the answer to all uh, tissue regeneration needs. So as we learn more, and remember, this is a relatively new area of science, And as we learn more about the capacity of each of these what we call immunophenotypes or those cells that express certain surface markers, as we become more knowledgeable about that, we are learning that there are certain subpopulations that are better for specific tissue regeneration and or to address specific clinical needs. So you talk about the cell surface markers that stem cells have. Do you use other ways to characterize stem cells after harvesting them? Well, the long-standing mechanism by which to identify or collect these cells has been largely their affinity for plastic. That is, these cells will ad- adhere to plastic culture wear and therefore sort of Uh, select themselves um, or at least sort themselves from from those cells that are more differentiated and no longer have the capacity to attach. Uh, Following that, what we 
in the laboratory do is go through a process of cell sorting. That is, we use antibodies to identify specific uh, proteins on the cell surface, and then we use a cell sorting mechanism to collect those cells based on the presence of the antibodies attached to them. Following that, we can grow them up or in culture, and we have a more homogenous population. Other than the plastic, um, the, the plastic adherence, the potential expression of specific surface antigens, and regardless of the population that we identify, we always confirm that they are capable of trilineage, trilineage differentiation, that is, adipogenesis, chondrogenesis, and osteogenesis. Uh, sometimes, and and or uh, neurogenesis. So, backing up a little bit, we use the same cells, a collection of cells, and confirm that they are capable of tr- what we call trilineage differentiation okay. following their identification with plastic adherence and surface marker expression. And how do you encourage these cells to choose a lineage route? Um, and differentiate into, say, an osteoblast or a chondrocyte? So we, the way that we direct the cells is to recreate the tissue niche that we would like them to assume. So within the body are pockets of cells uh, that are not fully differentiated. This is how we maintain the body, uh, or the body is maintained and refreshed, regenerated. And also, uh, it is the source of the healing capacity of the body. So, these cells are, again, within what we call a specific niche. And when they are called upon, there is a specific set of uh, physiologic parameters that recruit the cells and then direct them to become the tissue of need. Knowing this, we seek to recreate this in the laboratory. And so we have very specific, what we call culture medium, uh, that it has amino acids and glucose and uh, various other things to, to support the cells to recreate an ideal environment. We also keep them in incubators, as you know, and in sterile plasticware to essentially protect them from uh, ambient, <laughs> the ambient environment and put them into sort of a a, a very protected and optimized uh, cult in in a protected, optimized culture environment. Subsequently, when we want to drive them down a specific path, meaning adipogenesis, adipogenesis, osteogenesis, or chondrogenesis, we provide them with very specific nutrients and growth factors, as well as some uh, growth factors or proteins to stimulate upregulation of genes that we know are necessary for a specific tissue type, such as PPR gamma for adipogenesis. And this then encourages the cells to assume that lineage, lineage. It's by that mechanism that we confirm they are capable of distinct differentiation. Okay. So you're basically kick-starting gene expression that would reflect the same gene expression as you might find 
um, in normal osteoblasts. So they'd start expressing genes specific to that line. Correct. We kickstart okay. a little bit the genetic expression, and then we provide the environment that would be co consistent with that tissue type. Okay. To support the differentiation. And do you ever use 3D scaffolds to help them differentiate down a certain lineage that might um, reflect the, their natural environment? Absolutely. That is a key component of uh, tissue regeneration studies. That is, we've become very aware that in addition to these protein factors and culture conditions and humidity and so on necessary to support and encourage the cells down certain uh, tissue lineages or encourage them to differentiate specific, specific ways or not to differentiate, we have found that the surface and the structure on which they are cultured is extremely important. There are volumes of, there is a volume, volumes, there are volumes of literature related to the surface, so the smooth or rough or crystal or proteinaceous, we, we line it with various proteins like laminin or fibronectin. All of these things have very specific effects on the cells. In addition to this, the scaffold structure or architecture, how stiff it is, how uh, small or large the pores are within the scaffold, this also directs the cells. So the scaffold for a bone, for bone formation, would likely be very different than the scaffold for nerve or skin formation, for instance. Additionally, we find the culture conditions are very important. That is, uh, the oxygen concentration, the oxygen-CO2 ratio, and also the fluid dynamics, so the motion of the fluid. Uh, hence, we use things like perfusion bioreactors, what we call bioreactors, which are actually culture chambers that have dynamic fluid motion. This also influences the behavior of the cells. So when designing scaffolds and culture conditions to grow tissues in the laboratory, we have to take all of these things into consideration in the design of our laboratory conditions that target very specific uh, final tissue products. Okay, interesting. Choosing another route of um, questions, I was going to ask about embryonic stem cells. They have a greater potential to proliferate and nearly an unlimited differentiation potential compared to the stem cells we might be used to, the bone marrow stem cells or the ones derived from adipose tissue. Do you think these um, cells are going to be the next big thing to be used in a clinical application, or do they um, pose some problems? So embryonic stem cells uh, certainly have the greatest differentiation capacity. Remember that the only truly totipotent stem cells, or those cells capable of becoming anything, I suppose, come from the zygote. Subsequently, the, the next layer, or the next differentiation level, is the inner cell mass of the blastocyst. So taking this into account, there are not a lot of cells um, within each individual um, collection. And further, those cells, as we have found, be it from an embryo or a blastocyst, are not identical. 
We've actually identified that they actually vary in their differentiation capacity even in that early stage. They do, however, probably hold the greatest potential for tissue regeneration. Probably the best way to go about capitalizing on this potential is to identify a cell line. Remember, embryonic stem cells are essentially immortal. They should be. Therefore, if we find a specific cell line, that is, we derive uh, daughter cells from essentially an immortal embryonic stem cell that we find to be um, optimal, for instance, for tendon, for tendon generation, or perhaps bone, or even in some cases, uh, adipose, or for treating inflammation, then we can fully characterize and maintain that stem cell for that particular application. Now, whether or not embryonic stem cells will be the answer to all tissue generation uh, questions or needs, I can't really say because there are, <laughs> there are pluses and minuses to every cell type. Um, embryonic stem cells, because of their potential for immortality, and migration and wide tissue, wide tissue or diverse tissue generation may not be identical, may not be ideal for all clinical applications. So I think it really depends on the target need or the need that's targeted um, that will uh, that will determine the best cell source or cell line for that problem. Do you think we will start to see more more of them in clinical application once we've learned more about them? Oh, I don't think that there's any question that mm. specific cell lines and cell products will become a standard treatment. It's just a matter of identifying those cells and cell lines or cell products or tissue products that best meet the needs of the patients. And lastly, um, induced pluripotent stem cells. So what I gather, they are differentiated cells reprogrammed to regain their pluripotent properties. So in fact, you're turning back the clock. Could these cells offer us uh, an easier option for, for a clinical application? That's a very good question. And it is certainly uh, something of great interest because it sort of opens the doors for our ability to reclaim the potential, the differentiation potential and tissue regeneration capabilities of embryonic stem cells, but perhaps in a more controlled manner or a fully characterized cell line. You're right in that we do upregulate embryonic gene expression artificially by a variety of means. And sort of regress the cells, not necessarily to a fully embryonic state, that's a lot harder to, to achieve, meaning that it has to be immortal, uh, that the karyotype is stable, and that it f forms a teratoma when implanted, meaning it's capable of complete uh, organism regeneration. However, it is a, it is an an optimal source of cells or maybe an optimal cell source to answer some of the needs 
clinical needs, but more so, it may give us an opportunity to establish those cell lines that I mentioned earlier. That is, we can take a, a, a cell, even an adult stem cell, that is, is well suited for a specific clinical need, tissue generation, or, or treatment, and regress that to an earlier stage so that we can get more of that cell or a greater number of that cell for the specific pur purpose. Adult stem cells are not immortal. Therefore, their expansion capacity is somewhat limited. By regressing these cells to an earlier stage, we may extend or expand that div dividing capacity or expansion capacity and thereby increase the numbers available for a specific treatment. So I think at the moment, the most frequent use of stem cells in the clinical application is for tendon lesions. Would you agree? Yes, I think that certainly in horses. Yeah. In horses, yeah. When you culture the stem cells for use in tendon lesions, do you, do you culture them to... Um, Dif partly differentiate down a tenocyte's lineage, or are they stem cells that haven't been selected for a lineage yet? So I think the majority, um, based on my understanding and review of the literature, is that many of them are essentially fresh cell isolates, that is, cells that have been isolated from bone marrow or adipose and then expanded under conditions that uh, do not encourage differentiation. So I think many uh, applications are used that way. I believe there is also evidence that cells have been partially differentiated or at least cultured in differentiation medium prior to application to help ensure their differentiation toward the, the, the tenocyte. Uh, cell line. Um, so I, I think both are common practice. Okay. Is, I, this is, I know this is off the radar of your paper, but do you know which is providing a better prognosis? For the tendon lesions, I think that the results are very mixed. Um, certainly there are encouraging results uh, in that, you know, there have been positive outcomes. However, um, other there, but again, the results are mixed. Mm -hmm. uh, the jury is still out. And a lot of this stems from the fact that the isolation procedures are very different. Uh, the conditions, as you already alluded to, prior to implantation, so the culture conditions, the isolation and the culture are very distinct among uh, research studies and among many clinical applications. So it's the more um, characterization or description of the cells that is possible prior to implantation, the greater our knowledge base. So to reward that, the more we know about the cells we are implanting, the more we can assess the characteristics of the cells that are best suited to treat those things like tendon lesions. So this lack of knowledge 
which is largely attributable to the stage of learning that we're in. Again, stem cells are relatively new, and we're learning something new, essentially, about them every single day. So the more we know about those cells, their surface antigen, their differentiation capacity, their expansion capacity, and more importantly, how these cells behave after they are implanted, the more information we'll have about identifying uh, repeatable and effective uh, clinical strategies. So basically, watch this space. There's a lot more to come. Well, that's all from us for this EVJ podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.